The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I appreciate uh, the message that uh, Brother Matt brought to us this afternoon. Um, all of it except that part where he talked about me. <laughs> and um, he opened himself up, so I'm going to talk about him for a minute. Brother Matt and I go um, way back. We go, actually, I go a lot further back than Brother Matt does. I go, <laughs> I go way past the beginning of Brother Matt. Um, I knew his mother when uh, we were youngsters together, and um, even knew his great grandparents. His, his great grandfather was Elder Ray Pipkin, and he was about as humble and kind a man um, as I've ever known. I was a little boy when Brother Ray was an old man. And um, I can remember how kind he was and how quiet and calm he was. And in many ways, um, I see a lot of his personality characteristics in, in Brother Matt. And um, I just love him tremendously. You all know that uh, I was raised in California. And um, so I have a special place in my heart for those folks. As a matter of fact, I participated in Brother Matt's ordination. Um, I interrogated Brother Matt. Oh, Lord bless him. And, and I asked him a question. Oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, goodness, brother. I asked him a question that has a broader application than just Brother Matt. And I'm going to make the broader um, application. Get there quickly, please. <laughs> Brother Matt is not married. And, um, you know, the Lord said it's not good that man be alone. And the reason he said that is because it's true. Um, it is true. It's, yeah. it's not good for a man to be alone. Um, there is something missing in men um, who are alone. Um, and, and by alone, I mean not married to a woman. Um, and, and so I asked Brother Matt if he had thought about the characteristics of um, the kind of woman that he believed um, the Lord would have for him to marry um, as a minister of the gospel. In and, the interrogation of my ordination. <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of it. <laughs> and, uh, and he gave a very adequate answer. He gave a good, to be put on the spot that way. But I qualified the question, and I'm going to direct this to the young people around here. Okay? Um, in my lifetime, I have known many primitive Baptist women who... Um, allowed themselves to fall in love with someone that didn't give a wit for the church. Um, and there was something missing in their lives the rest of their lives. I've known primitive Baptist men that have done the same thing. They allowed themselves to fall in love with um, a woman who cared nothing about the church and there was something missing in their lives. Now, I'm not suggesting that you have to marry a primitive Baptist. What I am suggesting is that you get it clear that you're going to a primitive Baptist church and Amen. you're going to support me um, as a primitive Baptist, yes. uh, whether it's the husband or wife, that you get that established before you get very far into the relationship. When you see that it's getting kind of serious, you establish that. Say, right here's a line, and you need to decide if you want to cross this line because if you're not willing to cross it, we're through right now. Amen. Right. 
in um, to you young people, I'm as serious as a heart attack Amen. about that. Um, you have no idea the void that you will have in your life and the misery um, that you're going to expose yourself to if you just become infatuated with somebody and fall in love with right. being in love and marry that person and not give any consideration to your spiritual Amen. life. Amen. Amen. Okay? Amen. So... I told you I'd make a broader application of it. <laughs> this morning we tried to talk about <clears throat> adoption. And we went to four places in Scripture and showed you how um, uh, there is a, um, a connection um, of adoption and election. There's a connection of adoption and um, uh, uh, regeneration. Um, there's a connection um, between adoption um, and the atonement or redemption. And there is a connection between adoption and the resurrection. Okay, and we showed you where all those connections were. Um, two of them are in the Roman letter. Um, one's in the first chapter of Ephesians and one is in the fourth chapter of the book of Galatians. And those four doctrinal points are covered and they're all covered from the perspective of in some way relating to adoption. Okay. Well, the reason for that, and again, understand that from a Jewish perspective, what Paul was talking about would be something that they would be aware of where Romans were concerned, but the Jews didn't practice adoption. Okay. So primarily, the significance of what Paul was teaching applies to us folks, us yeah. Gentiles. Okay. We understand something about adoption. As a matter of fact, in the early church, um, adoption was something that was um, extremely popular and was sort of an expected thing by um, Christians, not only among Christians, but also from the standpoint of the community, the, the pagans and uh, what have you in the community, um, they kind of expected Christians to adopt. And you've uh, perhaps seen the movies where the baby will be put on a, a step of a of a house in front of a door and knock on the door and then the person comes to the door and there's a baby there. Well, where that comes from is that was, a, that was one of the things that pagans would do with Christ, to Christians. They would take their babies and put them on the uh, doorstep and leave them there. Well, why would they do that? Well, first of all, if you are um, living um, hand to mouth and you have a baby and um, that baby is the uh, feeding that baby and caring for that baby is going to have a direct impact on whether or not you survive. Um, then you're making that kind of choice, and there is that kind of poverty. I've seen that kind of poverty in Africa. There was that kind of poverty in the world. But beyond that, there was the issues that we were talking about, where um, if you had a daughter, and and most of the um, orphans that the Christians or uh, adopted were. Uh, girls, little girls, if you had a daughter, then um, you had this whole issue of a dowry that you had to come up with in order for your da daughter to get married, and if you didn't have a dowry, you had to support her the rest of your life. And so, <clears throat> um, um, people would have children that they either could not care for or they did not want, and um, prior to Christianity, a lot of those children were just left to die. But Christians 
and particularly Gentile Christians who understand, understood the beauty of the doctrine of adoption and saw themselves um, as playing out the role of Christ Jesus in adopting us when they would take an unwanted child and raise them. And incidentally, that had significant effect on the growth of the church in a relatively short uh, period of time in a matter of a few generations the church grew tremendously, local bodies grew tremendously because they were taking in adopted and adopting these children. So I just wanted to um, lay that out there. But adoption um, is a process, okay? It's, it's not an event, although it culminates with an event, okay? But, but um, in fact, it's a process. The very first thing that has to happen in order to adopt a child is you have to decide that you want to adopt a child. Okay? And, um, and um, obviously if you're going to adopt a child, you want to find out something about what children are available. And so there is, a, there is an intent to adopt that from um, uh, our perspective is um, altruistic. It's a charitable intention. It's a, a, an intention driven by love, if you will. Um, in the which that um, someone that um, is not part of your family, you want to have be part of your family, and then you have um, all of these um, infants or children that are available, but you're not going to adopt all of them. Okay? You know, it's a funny thing that the doctrine of election gets slammed the way it does, and no one you know, pounds people for just adopting one child when there's, you know, a hundred children available for adoption. Okay, you, you adopt one child and you're a hero in society for adopting a child you're admired, but the Lord, he gets bad press because he didn't adopt everyone. So you make the decision to adopt and then you make the choice of who, is, uh, who you're going to adopt. And having made that choice, then there are some legal requirements. First of all, it has to be established that that person is available for adoption. <clears throat> Secondly, it has to be established that you are qualified to adopt that child. And <clears throat> those things were established uh, by Christ Jesus at Calvary where our adoption is concerned. Yeah. That our redemption, you recall how we mentioned this morning that, uh, uh, that uh, if you were a slave in Roman society that you could be adopted, but in order to be adopted a price had to be paid because you had to be redeemed from slavery and having been redeemed from slavery you were granted citizenship and once you were granted citizenship, then you could be adopted into the family. Well, that's what Christ did for us at Calvary. That's what he did for us at Calvary. Okay? So once that um, legal work is all taken care of, then you take the child home. Then you take the child home. And that's what Paul is talking about in the 8th chapter of Romans when he said we're waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our bodies. That's what Paul was talking about. You know, over in the um, eighth chapter of Romans, <clears throat> this whole process of adoption is tied together beginning in uh, verse 28 of the eighth chapter of Romans. If you follow uh, Paul's argument throughout the eighth chapter, you find that he lays out the principle of adoption 
uh, both from the standpoint of the impact that it has on the new birth, that we receive the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, and also from the standpoint of uh, the resurrection, that we're waiting for the adoption of our bodies to wit the resurrection. And, and um, uh, in putting all of these things together, he tells us that, um, uh, that uh, the, the effect of this is that as we wait, um, that we're saved by hope. Well, the hope is the expectation of the culmination of the adoption process in the event, uh, which is the child going home. Right. The child going home. And so when Paul says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that are called to, the, uh, to well, let me just read it to you. And we know that all things work together for good. <clears throat> And we know that all things work together for good to them that love, the, uh, that love God, to them who are the called according um, to his purpose. You see, the called um, is the effectually called. It is those Amen. that have received the spirit of adoption. Amen. So he's going right back um, to where he talked about the calling before um, and the impact of the calling um, being that we've received the spirit of adoption. That's how he characterizes regeneration in the 8th chapter of Romans. Um, it's characterized as receiving the spirit of adoption. So when he's talking about called here, he's alluding to the same thing. Those that have received the spirit of adoption love the Lord. Those that have received, for whom he did foreknow, them he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also... Um, <clears throat> Um, for whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate uh, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, uh, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. You see, all of the components that um, are mentioned in relation to adoption are, are mm -hmm. contained there. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to give you something. Um, hopefully, you know, uh, I can present it to you in a way that um, you'll understand it, that just destroys Armenian theology. Okay. Do you understand in English grammar, in the construction of a sentence, that you have a subject and an object? Yeah. Okay. You understand that? And that in English grammar, the subject always acts upon the object. Yeah. Right. The subject is the doer of the action. Right. Okay. In this sentence, he says, for whom he did foreknow, whom is the subject, and he um, is the one that's doing the foreknowing. Right, right. Now, if you want to know who he is, you go back up to uh, the 28th verse, yeah. and where he says, <clears throat> in the 28th verse, uh, for, um, I can't find anything here. You go back to the 28th verse, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. That's right. God is the whom, okay? God is the whom, or is the, uh, is the he, excuse me. Uh, for all, all those that love God. Um, um, <clears throat> and we know that all things work together for good to them um, that love God. Them... Um, is a subjective, uh, a, a subjective pronoun. 
And uh, no, I have it backwards. Is, is, um, I'm not going to be able to explain this. <laughs> the home is us. That's right. Okay. That's right. And it's whom uh, we are whom God knows. That's right. Okay. So he is the subject. He's the one doing the work. And we are the objects. Yes. We're the ones that are being worked on. Amen. You see that? Yes. Okay. Now, <clears throat> the reason I said that is because he's um, presenting all of these five things um, with God doing the work. Right. And no one argues where the resurrection is concerned, that none of us are going to do any work in the resurrection. Right. We're going to receive the work of God in the resurrection. Amen. Right. You see that? Yeah. The foreknowledge of God, none of us are around to do any work Amen. where the foreknowledge of God is concerned. Right. Um, all of the work of God foreknowing has to be God because He foreknew us before the foundation of the world. We didn't exist. We can't work in His foreknowledge. Amen. You see that? The choice was made before we even existed right. so that um, we can't actively participate in making the choice. Amen. Right. Right. Well, if, if we were justified by the blood of Christ, that he did all the justifying, and we received the benefit of the justifying, right. then we didn't do anything to justify ourselves right. for eternal glory. Right. Well, then how can we have an active role in regeneration? Right. No See the problem? Yeah. See the problem? The grammar of the language will not support Arminian theology. Amen. The right. simple grammar, and Calvin's theology for that matter, right. the simple grammar um, will not support um, those theologies. Right. Because if you make an exception to any one of them, yeah. then you give license to make exceptions to all That's of them. Right. That's right. And you also destroy um, English grammar. Amen. So I want to talk for just a few moments about waiting for the adoption mm -hmm. to wit the redemption of our body. Do you understand that, that um, the quality of our waiting um, is uh, being saved by hope yes. that Paul is talking about? Yes. Okay. Do you understand that's a time salvation? Amen. Okay. It is. Okay. That you're not going to be saved by hope in eternity because there right. ain't going to be any hope in eternity. Amen. That's right. That's right. Okay. That what you hope for is something um, that has potential and you are confident of the accomplishment of that potential. Right. Well, how can we be confident of the accomplishment of the potential of the resurrection of our bodies? Because we're confident that He foreknew us. Amen. And because we're confident um, that He chose us um, in Christ before the world began. We're confident um, that Christ did the redeeming work um, of saving us uh, at Calvary. And if we can be confident about those things and we receive the spirit of adoption uh, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, where we have a confidence where our new birth is concerned, then we can be confident about the resurrection. Amen. But a lot of people aren't. Okay? And some of it has to do um, with controlling those folks. Something that, it's, that is important to under if you don't get anything else today, if you're a note-taker, write this down. Okay. Faith works by love. Amen. Amen. Okay. That's what the Scriptures say. That's right. 
Faith works by love. Now, do you understand the significance of that? It means it does not work by intimidation. Amen. It does not work by fear. Amen. It does not work by coercion. Amen. So that if, if um, any degree um, of uh, infusing fear um, to coerce someone to make a decision to accept Christ, even if they love the Lord, um, if in their, process, their thought process to make a decision to accept the Lord, they're thinking, I really don't want to go to hell. I hate the thought of that. I'm really afraid of going to hell. Um, I love the Lord, so this is a no-brainer. I'm going to ask you to come into my life and save me. Uh, doesn't work. That's right. Amen. Yeah. Doesn't work. Because faith works by love. Amen. And they're not being faithful. Right. <laughs> you see the problem? Yes. See, that's the dilemma that Calvinism and Arminianism has. Right. And that's the reason that they keep reaffirming their salvations is because they're not using love as the primary motive Amen. for making their decision. The primary motive is avoiding hell. That's right. The primary motive is, is to, um, is to uh, gain acceptance by the people around. Mm -hmm. So let's go for a few moments, and I'm I'm not going to take very long with this, even though there's a lot here. But let's go for a few moments over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, the Apostle Paul has dealt with uh, many misunderstandings and errors in the church at Corinth, um, and one of them uh, was that there was no resurrection of the dead. Now, understand that people didn't simply come in and say, you know this stuff about uh, Jesus being raised from the dead, um, that never happened. Okay? That's not what they were saying. There were some people called Gnostics. Yeah. Yeah. And what they were saying was, Jesus didn't have a real body. He was an apparition. He looked real. If you touched him, he felt real. But in truth, he was just a spirit that had all of the manifestations of matter, but um, that wasn't a material body. And the reason that it couldn't have been a material body is because all matter is evil. Okay, that was what the Gnostics believed. The Apostle, the Apostle John um, uh, goes head on all the way through the Gospel of John. Um, he's just pounding on the Gnostics all the way through there. When he talks about um, uh, you know, seeing with his own eyes and feeling um, the Lord and those sorts of things, those are all arguments um, to, to undermine the influence of the Gnostics that had gotten into the church. So these people say, well, there is no resurrection of the dead. <clears throat> that um, um, Jesus um, just, his spirit went back and what you saw that looked like a body um, rising from the dead was just an apparition. It was just a, a, a solid ghost of some kind. So, <clears throat> Paul addresses this. And he gives several um, arguments. There are seven categories of arguments all the way through this. Seven different categories. But I want you to look at these because uh, uh, it's important for us to understand that faith is never blind faith. The Lord never requires you to believe anything um, that is undefendable. He never requires you to believe anything 
that he doesn't give you um, some basis for belief right. in Scripture um, and a consistency. It won't be just one place in Scripture. Yeah, yeah. You'll find uh, different places in Scripture where the same issue is being dealt, at, dealt with from different perspectives, and there's consistency. Yeah. You know, one of the wonderful things about the Bible, and one of the marvelous things, is, is that it's internally consistent. Yes. It agrees with itself. So Paul is dealing with this in the 15th. I'm going to go through this kind of quickly here. In the first verse, he says, More, brethren, I declare unto you um, the gospel which I preached unto you, which uh, also ye have received, and wherein um, ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached uh, unto you, um, unless ye have believed in vain. Do you understand that the salvation that he's talking about is salvation by hope? Okay, that if you, if you abandon the doctrine of the resurrection, and he says this, that your hope is vain. Right. That your hope is vain. Yeah. You have no basis for hope if you don't believe in the resurrection. It's not going to get any better if you don't believe in the resurrection. Today is as good as it's going to get if you don't believe in the resurrection. But what Paul says here is he says... I preached this to you, and when I preached it to you, I always preached it the same way. I always told you the same thing. In other words, he's saying, um, there was nothing that I presented to you that I changed that would cause you to doubt um, what I said in the first place. Right. Or have to make a decision, was he right in this or was he right in that? He says, I preached to you the same thing. I was consistent the whole time I was preaching to you about the resurrection. I was consistent in my preaching concerning the resurrection. Then his next argument, in down in verse 3, he said, For I declared unto you, um, <clears throat> for I delivered unto you, um, first of all, that which I have received, how that Christ um, died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Okay? So he says, uh, my authority, when I preached this to you, every time I preached it to you, my authority was the Word of God. Now he's talking about the Old Testament. Yeah. yeah. Okay? He's talking about the Old Testament. I dropped my glasses. I got it. Oh. He's talking about the Old Testament. Yeah. And, and um, if you look in the Old Testament, um, you see... Um, uh, pictures of the resurrection and you also see an alluding to of the resurrection. Right. So, um, Job, for instance, talks about the resurrection. Yeah, right. <clears throat> uh, David talks about the resurrection when he said, was speaking about his son and he said, uh, he can't return to me, but I will go to him. Right. He's talking about the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And Paul used those examples in the Old Testament and said, look, this is not anything new. The prophets have been talking about this all along. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, Jesus made the same point when he said, um, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it. Yeah. That, he, uh, that Abraham had an understanding that when God told him to take Isaac into the mountain and to slay him, that God was not going to break his word that through Isaac uh, the promised seed would come and if necessary would raise Isaac from the dead. Amen. <clears throat> and so... He says, the scriptures agree with what I said. I always said the same thing, and I proved it by the scriptures to show that the points I, were ma I was making were valid points. 
And then he goes on, and um, in verse 4 he says, And that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, and after that was seen of above uh, 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part um, remain unto the present, um, uh, but some are fallen asleep. He says, he says, this is also not some big secret that I'm the only one that has any experience with it. He said, I did see Jesus after he arose from the dead. He appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road. But he said, I'm not the only one. Stephen saw him, and the twelve saw him. And not only that, that 40 days while he was on the earth before he ascended into heaven, he was seen of more than 500, and most of them are still alive. Now think about that for a moment. Think about that for a moment. You know, if, if there were 500 people alive today that had seen the Lord after He had been crucified walking on the earth, and I went and started talking to Him, and they said, oh yeah, I saw Him such and such. Oh yeah, I saw Him. Well, what did He look like? They described Him, and they're all giving me the same description. Well, the scriptures say that if you've got two or three witnesses, the word is established. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's more than 500, most of whom are still alive. <clears throat> well, that ought to encourage us. Amen. You know, Paul is writing this and he's saying, you don't have to take my word for it. There's more than 500 witnesses. Go ask them. They'll tell you that what I'm saying is true. And they experienced it. He goes on with this, and down in uh, verse 11, uh, he makes the point that there was a mutual agreement between he and what the other apostles were saying. Now, this is different than Paul being consistent all the time, him always saying the same thing. In beginning in, in verse 11, he talks about what he preached and how he went all the places and preached it, what the apostles preached and how uh, they went various places and preached it, and people who heard him and people who heard the other apostles, um, when they got together and talked about it, the same thing was being preached. That's right. So there's not only a personal consistency in Paul, but there is consistency of the message across right. all the apostles. Right. Okay, <clears throat> so obviously this is not some private interpretation. Yes, that's right. It's not some private interpretation. It's things that Paul um, was given an understanding of directly from the Lord. And the other apostles had their understanding of it directly from the Lord, but in the experience of living that 40 days with the Lord while he was here on the earth and then watching him ascend into heaven. These are good reasons to believe in the resurrection, Amen. aren't they? <laughs> it gets even better. It gets even better. They get into the trenches of the details of the resurrection. This is my favorite part of this chapter. They get into the details. And the Gnostics have all sorts of arguments about why there could be... It's sort of like Stephen Hawkins' um, argument about how there could be no um, creator because... Um, um, he would have to exist before there was anything, and um, things only exist in, you know, in our present uh, time-space continuum. Well, duh. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
if God created time and space, he's not subject to it. He doesn't have to live in time and space. I don't know why somebody didn't tell What I don't understand is why, why somebody didn't confront him on that and said, hey, dummy, do you not understand that um, you only have two choices? Matter is either eternal or there's a creator. Yeah. Now prove that matter is eternal. <laughs> and I'll back away from the Creator. Mm. And if you can't prove that matter is eternal, then you stop criticizing me about a Creator. Amen. 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 <clears throat> he says in verse um, 35, But some will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they um, come? And then Paul answers, he says, Thou fool, um, that which thou sowest is not um, quickened, except it die. And that which thou sowest, um, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may, um, uh, it may chance of wheat or of some other grain. And what he's saying here is they're saying, how can a body be raised from the dead? When you sow a body um, in the ground, what happens to it? You'll understand that these, they were not Egyptians and they didn't practice embalming or anything like that. It goes to the dust of the That's earth. Right. Yeah. So the body's not there anymore. That's right. So how could it be raised from the dead? There's no body to be raised is the argument. You know, the body has gone back to, um, to um, uh, the dust of the earth. Right. And he says... That's about the dumbest question I've ever had anybody <laughs> ask me. He said, all you've got to do is look at nature. You don't plant a corn stalk to get a corn stalk. You plant a little seed in the ground. You take a, a small portion of that because um, everything that makes the corn stalk is in that one seed. Is in that one seed. And he said, that's the way the resurrection works. You know, uh, David talked about being curiously wrought um, in the secret um, parts of the, uh, of the earth. And, and that word wrought there is an interesting word because it, it carries a connotation um, of a weaving um, pattern. You know what David is saying? He's saying, you knew all of my members when they were still elements in the ground. You knew what particular atoms were going to be me when they were still in the ground? Well, if God knew um, all about David before he ever existed, when he was you know, still uh, 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 dust in the ground, so to speak, then certainly he can put us back together. Amen. He can put us back together. And that's what he's saying here. He goes on with this. And... His, um, uh, he says, um, uh, but God, in verse 38, but God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of, the, uh, of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, uh, for one star differeth from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Do you understand that he's talking about individuality? Yes. Right. That's right. 
Right. He's talking about individual. You're going to be you Amen. in the resurrection. Amen. That's right. Okay. We're conformed to the image of Christ, but that doesn't mean that we're physical clones of Jesus. Amen. Right. That's right. Amen. You're going to be you in the resurrection. David said, I will go to him. I, David, will go to my deceased son. Job said, I'll see him with my eyes and not the eyes of another. And he said, not only that, understand that, that God has created um, bodies that don't all function um, exactly alike. Now, in his example, Paul is limited by his example to the physical universe, um, you know, because we don't have any understanding of anything beyond the physical universe that he could, could use as an example. But he says, do you understand that God made the stars? He made the sun and the moon. And they're different from one another. And he made the earth that we're standing on and everything in it. And there's variety. There's difference. And what he's saying there is that um, whatever, you know, John said, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. And what he's saying is there are no limitations on God where the resurrection is concerned. Yeah. There are no limitations. See, do you understand that in the resurrection, the laws of physics um, are not going to exist? Right. Not, there, there may be some governing principle. I believe the governing principle is the power of God yeah, um, and the Spirit of God um, uh, sustaining us eternally. <clears throat> but um, uh, the physical laws, for instance, the law of entropy that you start with, with uh, um, uniformity and... Um, I can't think of the word. What's the word? Um, order. order. You start with order. Thank you. You start with order, um, and as things continue to exist, they work toward disorder. Yeah. In human terms, that's called aging. <laughs> okay? That's called aging. Amen, <clears throat> you know, um, that all of your systems work really good when you're 10 years old, but when you get my age, you need some help. <laughs> okay? <clears throat> and what he's saying here is that uh, obviously entropy can't, can't um, uh, exist in the resurrection because we're going to have these bodies functioning perfectly forever. Yes. Okay, so there can't be entropy. Well, if there's no entropy, then the laws of physics of time and space don't exist the way that uh, in the resurrection, the way that we understand them. Now, there may be other laws governing our existence, but those laws won't. They can't. Right. And that's what he's saying here. That, that God made all these different things that even though they're all subject to these laws of physics, they're all very different um, and they function differently from one another. And he said if God can do that, he can do whatever he wants. He, right. he says, and then, and then you get into the really good stuff here. He says, um, as it is written, um, uh, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body, there is a natural body, um, and there is a spiritual body. This is the natural body. The spiritual body is not an immaterial body, it's not an apparition, it's not going to be a ghost, it's not going to be a spirit body. Amen. Okay? 
You know what he's talking about here? How is this body sustained? I gotta have food and water. Okay? I, the blood's gotta run through my veins. I gotta be able to um, have air. Those are all natural things, aren't they? This body is sustained in nature by nature. Right. The sustaining principle of our bodies in the resurrection is the Spirit of God. Amen. Will be sustained, um, uh, uh, eternally sustained by the Spirit. Do you understand the significance of that? That if the sustaining principle of our bodies in the resurrection is the Spirit of God, um, and God doesn't change, He's not going to change His mind about sustaining us, then however long God is, that's how long we'll be. Amen. See, that's, that, that's where the principle of eternal life comes from. Is that we're not going to be sustained by things that could fall in short supply. You know, that we could run out of. We're going to be sustained by an eternal principle, and therefore we're going to be sustained eternally. Sustained um, by the Spirit of God. And then he goes on and he makes a distinction between Adam, um, um, <clears throat> Um, the first man, um, Adam, was of the earth, earthy. The second, the Lord from heaven. As is the earthly, so also shall be the, or as, um, as the earthy, um, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such um, are they also which are heavenly. So he's just laying out the principle that I just laid out, that your, your body is going to be sustained by the heavenly in the resurrection, by the Spirit of God. He goes on with this, and he says, um, as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood um, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. In other words, none of us are going to get to the resurrection without a change. Okay? When he says flesh and blood, he's saying the way you are now is not how you're going to be in the resurrection. That's what he's saying. No, he's not saying that you're not going to have uh, flesh and bone bodies. How do I know that? Because the angel said, the one you see ascending into heaven will in like manner descend. Yeah. And Jesus was standing there talking to them. He had eaten with them. He had told yeah. them to feel him, to see that he was not a, a ghost or a spirit of some kind. And the angel said, the one that's ascending, he's the one that's coming back. That's right. Okay? Well, it was a flesh and bone Jesus that ascended into heaven. And it's going to be a flesh and bone Jesus that comes back. And he even said that. He said, Doth a spirit have flesh and bone? Yeah. <clears throat> and inasmuch as he um, proved that he was flesh and blood, and he's coming back um, in that same flesh and blood body, and we're going to be conformed to his image in the resurrection, we're going to be flesh and bone. Right. You understand that? Yes. He goes on with this, and he says, <clears throat> Behold, I shew you a great mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed. Changed from what? From the earthy to the heavenly? <clears throat> we all shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. At the last trump, the trump shall sound, and the <clears throat> uh, dead shall rise, uh, be raised incorruptible, and we shall, um, we shall be changed. Um, then the... <clears throat> Then this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this um, mortal must put on immortality. Okay? Do you understand 
the significance of, of Paul revealing um, the timing of the resurrection here. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. In other words, he defines the moment. The moment he defines is the twinkling of an eye. What causes your eye to twinkle is light reflecting off of it. You know how fast light reflects off of your, your um, eyeball? At the speed of light. Yeah. It doesn't slow down. Right. It twinkles at the speed of light. Yeah. Do you understand that in this present creation, nothing can happen faster than the speed of light? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And what that tells us is that when Jesus comes again, when the Lord says um, to the, when the Father says to the Son, go get him at the speed of light, yeah. he's coming back for us and carrying us back. Think about that. You think we're anxious for the resurrection? And Jesus is coming back as fast as anything can happen in this material universe. He's happy about the resurrection. You think we're looking forward to the resurrection? He's looking forward to the resurrection. I could go on with this, but I think I've made the point. God bless you. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.